statues are psychological terrorism. It's a very great day that they're coming down. This is not the end of the story, but it's an extremely powerful symbol. We knew better during Jim Crow. We knew better long before the dying pleas of young black men like George Floyd. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Last summer, protesters and activists, including religious leaders, celebrated the removal of monuments to slaveholders. But one remained on Richmond, Virginia's Monument Avenue, the towering statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Ten days after Minneapolis resident George Floyd was killed by the police, Virginia's governor, Ralph Northam, ordered the statue to be removed. It was wrong then, and it is wrong now. So we're taking it down. But then a group of Virginia residents filed a lawsuit citing local covenants. The legal battle ended on September 2nd. The Virginia Supreme Court ruled those covenants unenforceable. In Richmond, Virginia today, an historic moment as crowds gathered this morning to watch crews remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Lee's statue was removed and placed in a storage facility. The battle over Lee's monument is a reminder that many structures enable racial practices, not just legal ones. Social and civic organizations play a role, including the church. The latter is the focus of church historian and activist Dr. Jamar Tisby. In his 2019 book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, he walks readers through a powerful history that begins during the colonial period and offers a rare glimpse into the role of the church in shaping attitudes and offering a moral framework that would justify slavery and racialized laws protecting white supremacy. Now, just a reminder, this conversation took place in July 2020, not long after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. The Color of Compromise, the truth about that American church's complicity in racism. That is a provocative title. Yes, yes it is. Um, But it's a provocative subject. Uh, The book does a historical survey looking at um, the American church's failure, really, in so many instances to confront racism and, and not just a failure to confront it, honestly being part and parcel of the forces that constructed a caste system based on skin color. And so it's a difficult topic to address, but it's one that I felt that if we're going to continue to make racial progress in this country, which there has been some, but we have a long way to go, we have to continue to look at these truths and and, and even unearth the truths that have been hidden or muted or muffled from the past. That sounds like the answer to why you wrote this book. So let me ask you, who is this for? This book is for people of faith, particularly Christians. And if you really want to narrow it down, it comes out of my experiences working with, speaking to, serving white Christians who are theologically conservative, as well as black Christians who understand there's an issue, but want more data 
and, and more specifics behind it to try to help explain it to others. Why do you feel like we need a history recap? The conversation about race has been in the air. I've heard complaints actually from folks saying, oh my God, we got it. We keep talking about race. We keep talking about racism. Do you hear that? Constantly, constantly hear from folks that, you know, the, the sentiment is, why can't we just get over it? It's all in the past. Stop talking about it. And as a matter of fact, you talking about it makes it continue to be a problem. Or even funnier, folks say, you talking about it makes you the racist. And so you get all kinds of objections. But as you mentioned, the historical data is more accessible than ever. And yet... How many people actually access it? My favorite answer to people who ask me questions is two words, Google it. It's all out there. Um, It's very accessible, and yet two issues. Number one, uh, folks don't don't actually do it, and if they do, they don't know where to go or what sources are trustworthy, Um, much less go to sort of academic historians who are studying this from a, a very disciplined perspective. And then the second problem is, People continue to think that these are problems strictly of the past, and that's simply not the case. The reality is we're living in the legacy of America's racial past, and we're still dealing with ongoing problems. But one of the things I say often in the book is that racism never goes away, it just adapts. So the issue at stake here is not just what racism looked like in the past, but how it has adapted in the present and continues to persist today in many covert and and subtle ways. What are key events that you describe in the book that people may think they know, but they don't? Sure. One of the events that stuck out to me most clearly was in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which is a group of white Anglican men, passed a law that said, baptism does not confer freedom on people of African descent, Native Americans, or mixed race people. Now, in this single decision, you have religion, race, and politics all mixed up into one. So you have this political entity passing a law, you have it talking about religion and Christian baptism, and then you have uh, racial designations for, for people of African descent and Native Americans. And what they're saying is they recognize implicitly that there's something liberatory about the Christian faith. So that if you baptize someone, even if they look different, talk a different language, or from a different place, there's an equality that's implicit in that baptism, that you are now spiritual brothers and sisters, and you therefore cannot treat other people as property or as simply tools for your labor and your profit. Um, But they passed a law against that, which demonstrates the complicity of these Christian men in the political sphere in terms of race. And what also strikes me about that decision is it's in 1667, which is more than 100 years before the Declaration of Independence, more than 100 years before the ratification of the Constitution. So these issues of religion and race, and you can throw in politics there too, actually predate the political entity known as the United States. There's never not been a time where religion and race haven't been intertwined and where Christians and folks in the American church haven't somehow been complicit in constructing a system of inequality based on race. So that's one of the earliest examples I could find, and it was just shocking to me because of how early it was. And the reaction of parishioners, where are the non-property owners, where is their voice, is there a voice that they have here? 
Great question. It's always contested. Um, even in the most sort of racially recalcitrant denominations or or fellowships, there are always voices of dissent. And so I talk a little bit about that in the introduction and say that, you know, at the same time Christians have been complicit in racism, they're also they have also been the ones who have most ardently fought against racism as well. But there's a couple things about that. Number one, we overestimate the number of Christians who were pushing back against the racial status quo. It was always a minority. They were always sort of the prophetic voices calling out in the wilderness, if you will. And we also underestimate the opposition they faced. So the reason why there weren't more people pushing against the racial status quo is because it was very costly. Um, You could lose your job, you could lose your home, you could even lose your life, as was demonstrated in many cases. We should also note that black Christians have always fought against racism, of course, in their own interest of self-survival, right? So there's always been a mixed reaction from the people. But here's the thing, what often wins the day in any particular period of American history is complicity with racism rather than confronting racism. So even those voices of dissent get drowned out by the other voices, whether the other people, the other congregation members, or the elites who have decision-making power. And what tends to win the day throughout any particular period of American history is a tacit, if not explicit, support of racial identification and a racial hierarchy. That starting point, 1667, that gives us an insight into, as you say, pre-founding legacy of the roots and the way in which race, religion, and politics have been intertwined and codified to support each other. What are other points that you would bring up to illustrate the compromise that has undergone or adapted over the years to bring us to where we are today? There are so many examples. I think a couple that are helpful because most people know about them, but not the specifics. The Constitution, uh, it never uses the word uh, slave or slavery in the actual document, but there is an article that is commonly called the Fugitive Slave Article, the Fugitive Slave Clause, which says that if an enslaved person essentially escapes to freedom, goes from a slave state to a free state, they can be captured and sent back. Which is critical because, number one, it's sort of tacit support of the institution of slavery. And number two, what it does is make any black person sort of suspect in any environment. So I think this is important because I think we see this even today where black people doing sort of the most everyday mundane things from uh, waiting in a Starbucks to having a picnic in a park, police can be called on them. And there's a very long history of that in terms of if you are dark-skinned and you are in a space that is deemed white or um, you are not with a white person, there's something suspect about your presence there. There's something threatening about that. Now, that's going to be a stretch for folks who haven't thought about this for very long, but you can trace it all the way back to things like the Constitution and the way they treat enslaved persons who are in free states or free persons even, uh, because the assumption is that if you are of African descent, you are beholden to white people. And so the idea is, you know, 
Where's your permission to be here? For folks who are listening, like, that's wacky. That can't be. You're going to go back to 1787 or 1789 and, and, and connect stuff that we're seeing in 2019. I will simply put forth the idea that the assumption of black criminality or threat, these are not emerging sui generis in the 21st century. No ideas really do that, right? They're connected. Uh, one of the things historians say is everything has a history. So folks are making these phone calls, but why? Where does that come from? What's the context? And that's all history is. History is context. And I think you can just follow the breadcrumbs for a very long time about the black experience in America. And so if this is new to you, it's not because the events or the circumstances are new. It's probably because you're just hearing about it for the first time or for the first time at this volume. And that's been sort of the equalizing effect of social media is that now uh, black people who have experienced these things for decades and even centuries actually have a platform to broadcast them more broadly and publicly. But for white people who have not been used to that, who have not been in deep relationships with black people or familiar with black communities and experiences, this is all going to sound brand new. It's going to sound very implausible that it has a decades or centuries long history. So that's one thing. As far as the jumping to conclusions about motives, you know, I'm going to say something that, again, may sound really provocative, but I think when you get right down to it, it's not. Motives don't matter as much as we think they do. They just don't. So I don't say that motives don't matter at all. It does matter whether someone's intention was to purposely you know, offend someone or not. But what we have to do is stop focusing on the perpetrator as much and focus on the person who was victimized, marginalized, and oppressed. There's something in criminal justice reform called restorative justice. It's a very powerful philosophy because it focuses on the people who have been victims of a crime. And it says, how can we repair and restore the harm and the damage that has been done to the object of the hate? whether intentional or unintentional. And I think a similar perspective would help in race relations. It's not so much about the person who said the thing or did the thing. It's about the person who was harmed by the act or the words. And when we center the people who are harmed, in this case, people of African descent, black people, then the whole conversation starts to change. And so, yeah, I want to know if you are intentionally trying to offend. That matters to me. But at the end of the day, if you did offend, that's what we have to deal with. We've got to deal with the impact, not just the intention. I am seeing in many religious traditions beyond Christianity a greater push to confront and talk about race and racism institutionally and implicitly in practice and in traditions. Why now? Why this is happening? Because there's always been resistance to racism, and there's always been people of faith pushing back against it. Again, I point to the black church tradition, which has um, arisen in the context of first race-based chattel slavery, then uh, institutionalized and, and customized exclusion through Jim Crow laws, and now through ongoing forms of systematic and institutional racism. The black church has always been a bulwark against bigotry. And so that resistance has uh, pays off, you know. It was abolitionists who who helped create a narrative against slavery and helped to support the cause of freedom. So it's always been the case that people have been pushing back and what racial progress there has been is a result of this ongoing freedom struggle. 
Why now is, is, is an important question. I focus on second half U.S. history, so from Civil War on upwards with a concentration in the 20th century. So let me talk about the 20th century a bit. And the civil rights movement is massively important because it brings to the nation's attention what's been happening for decades and decades throughout the Jim Crow era. Media has a huge role to play in this, radio, newspapers, photographs, to, to actually visualize and narrate the atrocities that were happening to black people. And so laws begin to change. You get the Civil Rights Act in 64, Voting Rights Act in 65, Fair Housing Act in 68. Um, but then that's not enough. Folks begin to recognize that, okay, we've changed some laws and now black and white people can be in the same spaces. But that does not nearly equate to actual equity or power sharing among people of different races. And so the struggle continues. In the present day, in the 21st century, there's been a lot of things in the political realm that have pushed the issue of race to the forefront. Incidents like cell phone videos recording incidents of police brutality against people of color, uh, the, the horrendous Emmanuel 9 massacre where a white supremacist enters a church Bible study at the historic Emmanuel AME Church in South Carolina and kills nine people, uh, as well as events like the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, which is, you know, an explicitly white supremacist event, and then nation's political leaders saying there's good people on both sides. So all of those things sort of uh, unite to, to force a national conversation and a national discussion about events that have been going on for a very long time. Coming up after a short break, I continue my conversation with Jamar Tisby and why he believes the American idea of individualism can be an obstacle in conversations about racism. He explains the theological roots. Part of it is their religious understanding that pushes them toward individualism. You know, you have to have a personal relationship with God, that every person's sin is theirs and theirs alone, not part of a, a more communal structure. We continue after this short break. Stay with us. hope you're enjoying this week's show. I wanted to take a short break to tell you a few things about Inspired that you may not know. Our show was founded by a nun named Maureen Fiedler, who in the days after 9-11 saw a need for a national broadcast that would explore the rich diversity of beliefs among Americans. Since then, our commitment to creating and producing compelling radio has never wavered, nor has our commitment to making it available to everyone for free. No paywalls ever. But it's not free to produce this show, and we don't receive any funds from National Public Radio or the local stations that carry us. So I need to ask you for your support. If you enjoy Inspired, if you value it and count on it, please consider donating today. You can do that on our website at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. And thank you for your support. Now, back to the show.
Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. We are continuing our series of race and religion in America with an in-depth conversation with Jamar Tisby about his bestseller, The Color of Compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity in racism. We just heard Tisby describe a series of historic events that illustrate how the church intervened and at times collaborated to support white supremacy. We now turn to the present. Where do you see the opposition in the religious landscape today confronting the racism that you see as being perpetuated in institutions and in the systems you just spoke to? I'm so glad you brought that up because now we're getting to the crux of the issue about race in the 21st century. So I recommend to all listeners, uh, I should be getting royalties for these these book recommendations, but um, I always recommend the book Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. They're two sociologists who interviewed hundreds of white evangelicals about their views on race, and what they discovered is that in general, Westerners are pretty individualistic compared to the rest of the world. But even among Westerners and Americans, white evangelicals are even more individualistic on average. They're almost hyper-individualistic. And part of it is their religious understanding that pushes them toward individualism. And so, you know, you have to have a personal relationship with God, that every person's sin is theirs and theirs alone, not part of a a more communal structure um, shaped by or or your sin doesn't impact it. Um, and, and, And all of these sort of theological beliefs that sort of lend credence to the idea that one person is an island in terms of their faith. That's not to say that they wouldn't go to church or, or, or celebrate certain aspects of, of communal life in terms of faith, but in terms of race, they see it very individualistically as well. And so, they understand sin as a, as a very personal, interpersonal problem. Therefore, racism, if that's a sin, that's, that's interpersonal too. It's one person not liking another. Therefore, if I don't use the N-word, or I have black friends, or what have you, then I'm not a racist. I'm not part of the problem. That's true as far as it goes. What it fails to recognize is the systemic and institutional nature of racism, which is impersonal, so that racism can work out without anyone's specific intention, simply by the structures and the practices that are already set up. I'll give you an example. Redlining is a practice where uh, realtors would literally draw red lines around areas that had any black people or any undesirables, which were usually black and brown skinned people. And uh, folks in those areas found it harder to get loans, the homes were valued less, and realtors did not sell those homes to white people. And they only sold those homes to people of color and poor people. And so redlining as a practice has sort of been legally outlawed for decades. But the fact that it was set up and persisted so long means that residential segregation patterns remain. Now, what many individualists will do is say, well, look, I bought my home because there were good schools in the area. It was close to work. You know, there was shopping. It had nothing to do with race. Well, we got to peel back the layers a little bit and see, well, why are there good schools in that area? It's because property taxes are higher, because wealthier people live there, because poor and black people were excluded from those opportunities. You look at the GI Bill. Here's another book you can read. When Affirmative Action Was White 
The GI Bill after World War II explicitly excluded some of the benefits like funding for college or, or home loans to people of color, even though they had fought in World War II. And so my point is, if you can only conceptualize race and racism as an individual problem, then grabbing coffee at Starbucks with a person of another color is sort of the, the whole thing. Or, or making a statement, a verbal statement against racism is sufficient. What, what I'm arguing, what historians have shown, is that those things are necessary, but not sufficient. We have to look at the institutional and systemic issues as well. What do you see as the most critical actions an individual can take after reflecting on this history um, that you lay out in The Color of Compromise? So the individual action that I think is most important is an attitudinal correction, and that's actually in the conclusion of the book. And I'm speaking now directly to the people who would agree that there's a racial problem in America, that there always has been, and that we're living in the legacy of that so that racism is not simply a problem of the past, but also an issue of the present. And to those folks, I say that we have to be prepared to take up our cross and follow Jesus, that we have to heed the call that Yahweh gave to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 to be strong and courageous, um, because it has never been easy to protest injustice in general, and in the American context, it has never been easy to protest racism specifically. So, it will cost you. It will cost you relationships with people on Facebook who you have to unfriend. It will cost you tense conversations and conflict within your own families at the dinner table or on holidays. It will cost you uh, at your job uh, losing opportunities because you're the one who's rabble-rousing and and bringing these issues. It will cause you, uh, perhaps even, yes, even today, it will cost you your life. And so we have to count the cost. But the promise that God gives Joshua is that I'm with you wherever you go. And, and that's the message of hope I hold out for, for folks, is that when you engage in this work, you actually get more of what's most important, which is a deeper relationship with God. Now, that's sort of on a sort of spiritual, you know, internal level. But I spend the entire last chapter talking about practical things that people do. Um, I just want to unpack the ARC model of racial justice really quickly. It's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. It's not a linear model, so all these things are happening at once and interweaving, but it gets to the most common question I get when I speak about race is, what do I do? And so the ARC model is a way to sort of conceptualize that. Awareness gets to the information aspect. We got to equip ourselves with knowledge, and it's never been more accessible, as we mentioned before. And so for me as a historian, I want people to know U.S. history because you need to know about the labor movement, you need to know about the civil rights movement, you need to know about lynching, you need to know about convict leasing if you want to have an informed perspective on race relations today. And for folks who want to get a start, start with the civil rights movement, because that's something we still talk about a lot, something we talk about every year at Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Read John Dittmer's Local People about the Mississippi Freedom Struggles, or, or Charles Payne's I've Got the Light of Freedom, or Henry Louis Gates has some great specials on PBS, The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. There's lots of ways you can get info about race relations in the U.S. But moving on, the R stands for relationships. So when Jesus wanted to reconcile himself to humanity, he didn't send an email. He didn't send a memo or a tweet. Uh, God sent his son in person 
And so that tells us that, that, that reconciliation is relational, that you actually have to know people who are different from you in order to understand and empathize with them. And so crossing those racial lines is still very important. But a lot of people want to stop there at the awareness or the relationships aspect and say, I have black friends or, or white friends and, and, and I get along with people who are different. That is necessary but not sufficient. Lastly, you have to have commitment, a commitment to act. And particularly in systemic and in institutional ways, I think one of the greatest crises that we're facing in terms of civil rights today is the crisis of mass incarceration from first contact with police to the laws that are in place to sentencing policies to the brutality of actual imprisonment. It's the one institution that most closely mirrors the physical aspects of slavery, chains, shackles, bars, all those kinds of things. So what do we do about it as believers? Is that something we just write off? Do we just follow the culture on that? Or how do we combat it? And it can go into you know, education. It can go into um, the, the, the healthy foods that are offered to people in poverty, all kinds of issues. But we have to commit ourselves to acting, particularly on the systemic and institutional level. Thank you for sharing that and for breaking down, for many of us who see that ARC uh, acronym, what the roots of it and the theory that is informing it. So the argument about looking at institutions, what do you see uh, houses of worship, and particularly the Christian church, what are the institutional challenges that the church faces today and the churches that you're looking at specifically? There's a plethora of challenges. Some of it's educational. So if we look at our Bible colleges and seminaries, uh, there have been recent efforts to diversify the course offerings and the curriculum, but we've got a long way to go. Uh, it is conceivable that you could go through Bible college and or seminary and really not substantively engage with any Christians or theologians of color, um, particularly African-descended or black people. And that's a deficit in our education. So it behooves us as believers, particularly in America, to understand how Christian believers have theologized and conceptualized the faith in the context of racial oppression. Uh, because Christians of African descent in the black tradition, you know, they'll look to Exodus and they'll read about the Hebrew slaves, but they won't read that metaphorically. <laughs> we, we don't look at that as a hypothetical. We look at that as part of our actual lived real experience historically. And so when God talks about setting the captives free and proclaiming liberty to them that are oppressed, we feel that in a different way and we preach that in a different way and we sing that in a different way. And that's part of the diversity of the body. So part of the issue is educational. Part of the issue, though, is also attitudinal. Again, getting back to this idea of individual versus institutional and allowing ourselves to sort of sit in the reality that even though I may not have owned slaves, even though that these things have happened decades before, that we still are living in a context that has been shaped by the past. And that's true of our own individual lives, right? Who we are today as we listen to this program, is a result of things that have happened to us in the past. Now, if that's true on an individual level, it can also be true on a collective level as well. And then lastly, in terms of attitudinal challenges, we've got to resolve that fighting racism and promoting racial justice isn't going to be an occasional thing. It's going to be an ongoing part of our lives. It's not just for Black History Month. It's not just for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's for the entire year, every day, day in and day out for years to come. And the reality is, 
we labor for a day that we won't see. It took us centuries to arrive where we are in terms of the racial divisions that we see in the church and beyond. It's going to take a long time to take down those walls brick by brick and promote reconciliation, but that's okay. Everything we do is a step closer in the stride toward freedom. And so we just need to resolve ourselves that this is a marathon and not a sprint and set our disposition toward being anti-racist. I first spoke to Jamar Tisby in 2019, shortly after his book was released. We reconnected in July of 2020 for a candid conversation about how much has changed since the book was published. That's coming up. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining this week, we are continuing with an in-depth conversation with Jamar Tisby about his bestseller, The Color of Compromise. I reached out to him in July of 2020. During that summer of racial reckoning and national protests, I wanted to hear Dr. Tisby's take on how things have changed, both in our public conversation and in the church. Since we last talked, the landscape is dramatically different. My touch point is really like 2015, um, sort of the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. And just speaking from sort of a Christian perspective and the circles that I'm in, at that time, we were basically calling on white Christian leaders, especially those with larger platforms, to speak up and to say something and to speak out about Black Lives Matter. And even that phrase was so controversial and we had to unpack it for so many people. And then now in 2020, and I don't think it's just one factor, but in in 2020, in the current wave of of protests and uprisings, there is something that feels different. Uh, Certainly from the perspective of not having to sort of push as many white Christian leaders to say something, that's different. Um, And you'll also see, even on these marches and these protests, you'll often see a multiracial gathering of people of faith generally and and Christians specifically engaging in this stuff. Whereas I think five years ago, that would have gotten you written off in some circles. It still does. Okay, explain that. What What do you mean by that? I mean, you say it would have gotten you written off in some circles. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm going to interrupt you because I want to understand what you mean by that. (laughs) So, I mean, it's the longstanding bifurcation in some Christian circles, especially white Christian circles, between the spiritual and the material. And so you have, during the civil rights movement, uh, a lot of white pastors and Christian leaders saying that the marches and the protests and the boycotts, that's beyond what Christians should do. You should obey the law. And even those who were in support of black civil rights were saying, well, just work through the courts, but all of this civil disobedience stuff, that's beyond the pale. And you had even many Christian leaders saying, we shouldn't be talking about this. That's politics. And you're bringing politics into the pulpit, which was always selective, right? They were always perfectly bold about talking about their particular issues, whether that's Bible in schools or prayer in schools or abortion or taxes even. That was all 
okay to talk about from the pulpit. That was all okay for Christians to get engaged in. But when it came to racial justice, that was beyond the the boundary. And so I think there are some circles today where that is still the case and uh, participating in something in a march or a protest, particularly under the banner of Black Lives Matter, which a lot of people look at the organization and say, well, we can't get behind all this stuff because it's not Christian. So if you participate in this stuff, that means that you're going too far as a Christian. That's what some would say. And and do you see a difference based on what you just said about this expectation or this cultural bifurcation of what was appropriate to talk about from the pulpit? Has this, from your perspective, made a difference? So with all of these questions, the, the answer is time will tell. <laughs> we we None of us know, particularly people like me who are focused on the historical aspect, what will come next. Um, I think there are some things we can look out for. Maybe we can talk about that later. But I do think there is a somewhat of a shift in the sense that, like I said before, there are white Christian leaders who are much more willing to speak out. But on the flip side, there's also, I think, a host of black Christian voices who have our own platforms and don't need to sort of wait on white Christians or white evangelicals specifically in order to have the microphone passed to us, so to speak. So that could be uh, like my organization, The Witness, which has literally hundreds of articles now on issues pertaining to race from a black Christian perspective, our podcast, Pass the Mic, being on this podcast. And of course, we're not the only ones. You can look at the Ladies of Truth's Table. You can look at Latasha Morrison and her Be the Bridge organization. So there are a lot of other voices now that we can listen to publicly. And I think that's a shift as well. When we spoke last, you told me that you spent a lot of time in white Christian evangelical spaces doing guest sermons. And oftentimes they're predominantly white. You're one of the few African-Americans in the congregation, in the service. And oftentimes you're at the front preaching and sharing Mm -hmm. your message. Has there been a growing demand? Are you getting more invitations to come into churches and to spaces that you have not before been invited? So I would say there is a strong interest among white evangelical Christians to make a change in how they have approached race historically. Now, let's not overstate it. What they're doing is inviting a speaker like me in to listen to a talk that, let's say it's a Christian college or university, you know, even if hundreds attend, it's still a very small proportion of campus. And the decision makers like boards of trustees and college presidents are often not in attendance. So, We shouldn't overstate what it means to be interested in this topic. But at the same time, there is a strong interest. I mean, all of last year, my book tour was essentially supposed to last a few months, but it went all year long because Christian organizations and institutions are asking these questions now. And I think that's an accumulation of factors from, you know, even just this decade you look at what's happened from Trayvon Martin to Mike Brown and Ferguson to the Emmanuel Nine to the Charlottesville rally to the 2016 election to the recent videos that came out with uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and stories of Breonna Taylor and so many others. So it's it's sort of a, a, a national conversation that hasn't completely stopped. And Christians are part of that too. So there is interest. Again, what it translates into 
time will tell. Mm. I'm curious, what was your take when you started to see Confederate statues being pulled down and banned, for example, like from NASCAR? Yeah. Oh, man. Look, Confederate monuments, symbols, iconography, there's absolutely no reason for them to be up or flying in this day and age. They, they never should have been up in the first place, but certainly not in 2020. And so my first reaction is finally, and it's about time, like take them down, take them all down. And I love actually seeing the ones that aren't down yet, seeing activists reappropriate them and spray painting Black Lives Matter on it. Or I saw there was a, a Confederate monument, I can't remember what city, but they projected an image of Ida B. Wells onto it. And they're, they're being subversive. They're saying, if this physical monument to white supremacy is going to stand, then guess what? We are going to cover it with anti-racist symbols and icons. And if it won't come down, then then we're going to make it into what it should have been always. My second reaction was also, wow, this moment feels different. If you had told me even six months ago that NASCAR was going to ban Confederate flags at their races, I'd have been like, I don't know what food or substance you're taking, but, you know, <laughs> share it. <laughs> it was like, like, I just wouldn't have believed it. Yeah, it, it, that decision seemed to generate a lot of attention, media attention, media coverage. But part of what you described is also activists taking spray paint and graffiti. And there's been a lot of coverage about vandals and violence. What do you see when you see vandalism or graffiti? What does it look like to you? What are you seeing there? And I see you shaking your head because I'm guessing this is not the first <laughs> time you've been asked this question. And I'm sorry uh, to ask the question because I have to ask it. It's Yeah, there's no problem with the question. It's the people who are bringing this up as an issue. Like the property damage is the main story right now. It's incredibly frustrating because usually, so I say it's contextual because if somebody brings that up, they can do it in one of two ways that I've seen. One is a way of deflection. And they're basically saying, well, this is not righteous because people are breaking windows and starting fires and there's even violence associated with this. So, you know, that's what they're highlighting and dealing with. And by corollary, what they're doing is ignoring the murders and the anti-black police brutality that were the catalysts for these protests and uprisings. Uh, but there's another spirit in which one can ask it, which I see a lot of white evangelicals doing is, what do we make of this? How do we make sense of this? Like, we don't think that violence and property damage is the way forward, but we understand there's like legitimate problems that people are protesting and, and trying to make their voices heard about. And that's a different conversation. And that's someone I can talk to and explain you know, as MLK say, a riot, quote unquote, is the language of the unheard. But also we can talk about it from a historical perspective and the fact that white power brokers don't pay attention unless property is at stake. And you can look throughout U.S. history at that. You can look at the Civil War where uh, the Mississippi Articles of Secession called the institution of slavery uh, the greatest material interest in the world. And they were concerned about production and about labor and about the economy and the stance of the union to abolish slavery would affect their bottom line and would affect, in that instance, they were considering human beings or people as property. And so it was a violation of property rights in the minds of some Confederates. And you can look toward the civil rights movement. 
two things really brought uh, the civil rights movement to national attention. One was the exposure of people across the country to the actual physical violence that was being enacted upon black people. And you can think of Emmett Till and the fact that his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, decided to to have those pictures of her mm-hmm. mutilated boy mm-hmm. published in Jet Magazine mm-hmm. and the catalytic effect that had. But the other thing that sparked attention was property damage. And so you can look at the 1965 uprising in Watts and how much damage occurred there and how all this national attention focused on it. And then so many conservatives, both politically and religiously, especially white Christians, came away saying, we need law and order. Mm. And that's when they really stood up and paid attention. And that's when, you know, the Kerner Commission gets instituted and people really want to know what's going on in the inner city, what's going on in these ghettos that, by the way, you've created. You know, that's when people sit up and listen. And so I'm not condoning or advocating that. That's not how I would structure or lead these protests, but I'm also not going to take my eye off the ball and get distracted that broken windows or boarded up windows are really the issue when the issue is black people continuously losing our lives, living under the constant threat, not only of police surveillance, but of control and of brutality. And those are the issues that we need to deal with. And until we do, then we're always going to see these sparks being very damaging in different ways. I want to pause for a second and ask you how you're doing. Thank you. (laughs) Um, it's a question that changes day to day and sometimes hour to hour. Uh, yesterday, I was on a call with uh, some other black Christians, and we had to go around and say one word that described how we were feeling in that moment. And I think that word yesterday still applies today. And I said I, I felt impatient, impatient for change, impatient for progress. Uh, very glad that these protests and uprisings weren't just a flash in the pan. It wasn't just a night or a weekend and then the news cycle moved on. Um, But also eager and impatient to see some substantive systemic change, whether in policing or funding for public schools or mass incarceration, or you name a host of other issues that we've been talking about for years now. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to see some changes and some differences that Impatience is always in conversation and tension with absolute exhaustion. Mm. And, you know, Baldwin said to be a Negro in America and relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all the time. I think you could also say a state of fatigue almost all the time. Mm. But this time it's more of an acute fatigue. So there have been at least three days in the past three weeks where I had fully intended to have a semi productive day, which during the pandemic means I might get one thing done, but um, <laughs> I've been absolutely floored. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I, I, I haven't been able to do anything. And that's a kind of exhaustion that before this latest uprising, and I think it's also coinciding with the pandemic and all of that, that's something that was extremely rare before. I would, I would feel tired sometimes, but I could still kind of press and do stuff. But these these past few times when I felt that fatigue hit, I couldn't do anything. Just sit there, basically. So that's something that's new. <laughs> um, and, and that's a kind of exhaustion that's just like deep in your bones that a good night's sleep doesn't really take away. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Jamara. Well, the word that just comes to mind is trauma mm. and being re-traumatized and reminded. Right. Right. It's it's a constant tension. And I, as a student of history, live with it all the time. I mean, 
I haven't said this much out loud, but I had to change my dissertation topic partly because I couldn't, I was studying white evangelical racism, essentially through the lens of a particular black evangelical. But what that meant was I was taking a long, hard look at white evangelical racism in the 20th century. And after writing The Color of Compromise and living this reality where I speak and write about racial justice all the time, I was like, I, I can't do this like emotionally mm-hmm. looking into this for years in a detailed manner and then writing about it. And so um, it really does take a toll. And it's a toll that a lot of people, it's not the first thought for a lot of people, even with like black scholars. I have a friend, uh, Malcolm Foley, who's an incredible scholar. He's uh, a PhD candidate at at Baylor University. And he's studying um, lynching in, in the early 20th century and black Christian responses to it. And there's hardly a more graphic, depressing ugly thing to look at than lynching Mm -hmm. because of the physical brutality involved in it and the clear sign of white supremacy. And, and we talk all the time just about how to do this work without it completely crushing us because it's necessary work. I mean, the U S still hasn't taken a good, hard national look at its racist history uh, in, in, in many cases. And, The work of historians, I think, particularly is vital right now as we seek to understand how we got to this racial moment. But, you know, I hope listeners understand like this takes a toll. I mean, Mm. self-care is life saving, like it's a necessity. Self-care is health care. I mean, I I have therapy. I do therapy. Um, I had to find a black Christian woman. So, so that they could understand in a culturally responsive way the kind of things that I was talking about regarding race. Uh, you know, we have <laughs> hundreds of text messages a day in various group chats of black people where we're just like, you won't believe what they did this time or, you know, how are we getting through or just, you know, sometimes an emoji (laughs) saying, you know, how tired or frustrated we are. Those are the things that help us get by. But it's like, I think that's something that it's hard for a lot of white people to understand. It's like, this is not quote unquote an issue that you can study at arm's length. This is really life or death in a real sense. And so we do this work at great cost to our mental health and our physical health and even our spiritual and emotional health. But we do it for survival. And that's what I think folks need to understand about this. Jamar Tisby, the author of The Color of Compromise, a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, Tisby went on to earn his Master's in Divinity at Reformed Theological Seminary and is currently a Ph.D. candidate in history at the University of Mississippi. That's all for this week's episode. Our producer is Kevin McCarthy, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. If you would like to learn more about us, sign up for a newsletter, and subscribe to the podcast, visit interfaithradio.org. Take care, be well, stay safe, and stay connected. See you next week.